Welcome to the special edition of the Canna Book Club. Today we talk about how cannabis research is done. We have three PhDs joining us today. This episode was recorded live on Clubhouse. If you want to partake in these conversations, please find us on Clubhouse and follow our club Resonate With Us. Sit back and enjoy, folks. I hope you enjoy this one as much as I did. And welcome, everybody, to Resonate Radio. We are live on YouTube, Twitch. We're here on Clubhouse. Hello, everybody in the audience. It is a pleasure to see you all. I'm excited for today. This is the Canna Book Club, uh, where we usually break down the cannabis research paper. Um, but a couple of weeks ago, you know, I kind of threw out there. I was like, hey, Dr. Anna. I would really like to talk about how kind of we come together for papers. What does it actually take? Uh, and, you know, what are some of the hurdles uh, that we see here with research uh, in cannabis? So uh, very, very, very excited to have an absolute beautiful audience uh, with us today, a beautiful panel. Uh, so without further ado, I'd like everybody to uh, introduce themselves. Uh, and on my screen, I see uh, Dr. Kaplan, and then I see Casey. I think, uh, hopefully, that's the order. Uh, but I would like everybody to introduce themselves, and uh, we'll get down uh, into it and kind of talk about what uh, what is going on with cannabis research uh, nowadays. So, uh, first off, I guess Dr. Kaplan, if you want to introduce yourself, please. And uh, yeah, let's get this started, everybody. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks so much for having me, Corey. Uh, appreciate being part of this conversation. Uh, my name is Darren Kaplan. I'm a horticultural scientist, and I specialize in controlled environment plant production. Uh, I studied at the University of Guelph, where I got a PhD in um, cannabis horticulture. Um, I went on to work for a vertically licensed or a vertically integrated cannabis company in BC, around where I live in, in Kelowna, BC. Um, so I was the director of research and development there called Flower. Um, I also worked with Scott's miracle Grow uh, through their subsidiary, the Hawthorne Gardening Company. We built out a, uh, a purpose-built cannabis horticulture R&D facility in Kelowna called the Kelowna Research Station. So there we did all sorts of research with a team of brilliant scientists. So I spent some time leading that operation. Uh, now I am working as an independent consultant with cannabis companies around the world, helping them get their operations set up and uh, helping them optimize operations that already exist. Hey everyone, I'm Casey Alberon. Uh, I'm up in Humboldt County, California at the moment, uh, working in cannabis extraction, solventless extraction. And I have a bachelor's from Humboldt State in environmental biology. And I was the one to suggest a little cannabis book club here at Resonate Radio. Happy to be here. I'm Denny. Hi, everybody. I'm Anna Schwabe. They call me Dr. Annabis in this room. Um, I have a background in cellular and molecular biology a master's in plant population genetics, and my PhD was looking at variation in cannabis with a sort of a background in genetic identity and searching for those um, differences in cannabis and what the, what the genetic differences mean within the variation of cannabis. And 
super excited about tonight and to talk about cannabis research and um, excited to hear what our special guest has to say and complete. My name is Corey again. I'm the managing resonate or founding manager. What did we say? Oh my goodness. See, I'm so nervous. I tell you, I've said it so many times. I, I can't even do it today. Uh, managing partner uh, of Resonate Cannabis Incorporated up here in Canada. We do large scale uh, cultivation consulting and I'm writing my capstone right now this semester from Guelph uh, for my horticulture diploma. So um, I feel definitely inferior on this panel in that sort of way, but uh, yeah, extremely excited to have a fellow uh, Guelphian uh, up here with me. So yeah, excited to have this today. Thank you so much, everybody. Am I next? Um, I'll just jump in. <laughs> Anna, um, I also started off in cellular molecular biology, uh, biochemistry. I went to UC Davis. I um, fell in love with pharmacology, toxicology, started researching um, acosinoids, which are downstream, like part of the endocannabinoid system. And then I did my PhD in the structural biology or structural biochemistry um, of the endocannabinoid system as targets for drug discovery. Oh, also I'm Miyavi. Um, and now I do research, my company is called Real Isolates, and we do research on rare cannabinoid formulations, specifically ones that are present in smoke. Excellent. Hi, Miyabe. Miyabe met on, and I met on TikTok, where I've been a slacker lately. I got content on LinkedIn. Uh, anyway, we'll get into who I am. My name is uh, Dr. Cody, your cannabis pharmacist. Unlike the rest of the panelists, I have a PharmD, not a PhD. Uh, and the primary difference being I'm, I'm a clinician. I'm licensed to practice pharmacy. Uh, I deal primarily with doctors, nurses, and patients, where I'm a pediatric emergency department pharmacist. Um, and so that, that's what I do day to day. I'm also getting my master's degree in medical cannabis science and therapeutics. Um, I'm the president of the Medical Cannabis Student Association. I'm active in a bunch of organizations. And really, my primary goal is to protect the sanctity of medical cannabis and educate as many people I can in this world about the importance of the endocannabinoid system, and not just as it relates to cannabis, but rather as it relates to human and really all uh, vertebrate health uh, around the world. So my name's Cody, uh, and I'm done speaking. All right. Um, my name is Molly Russell. I am another managing partner at Resonate Cannabis Incorporated. Um, I am coming on the cultivation side of things. I have learned uh, mostly by doing and uh, not, you know, from the... Um, educational part of it first. Uh, so I am very happy to expand my knowledge on cannabis from a scientific perspective. Um, as um, English is not my first language, and this was uh, the most exciting part of me taking on to this um, adventure with the rest of the uh, science book club. Um, I am super humbled to be a part of this uh, discussion today. And uh, I can't wait, um, you know, to see where this conversation takes us. Thank you so much, everybody, for the introductions. Again, extremely excited to get rocking and rolling. So let's get started with it. Uh, and the same question forward, which I'll give to uh, Dr. Kaplan first here. Uh, how do you start a cannabis research project? What uh, What's kind of the first thing that, that goes behind this? I think that might be kind of our first thing to go, because really, 
I, there's there's actually a process to it as I'm finding out right now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it really depends where you are. Uh, so I'm I'm located in Canada. I started doing cannabis research uh, about five six years ago when it was just legal for medicinal purposes and. The, the process there was a lot different than it is now. And in the U.S., it's, you know, in the last five, 10 years has been a huge change in how cannabis research is done. Uh, so if we're talking now, it's, it's typically um, a, a, if it's on the academic level, a, uh, a university will partner up with a producer for funding uh, or they'll have government funding from one of various kind of funding bodies. Uh, and the, uh, the main researcher, the principal researcher, will have a research question, or if the graduate student's lucky, they could come up with their own research question, uh, and they'll be able to execute their research either with a, um, a partner, so like on-site at a production facility uh, or a processor or whatever, kind of, if it's a medical research, it'll be different than if it's production research or post-harvest or extraction or chemistry, something like that, but um, yeah, so that's kind of how you get started. You look for funding, you find a partner, and uh, you make sure you're in a country that you can do that all legally. Thank you. I appreciate that. And this is the, you know, real beautiful thing that we have on the panel here is that, uh, you know, we have folks in a couple of different countries that have been able to uh, do research uh, and put it out there publish-wise. So, um, Dr. Anna, is there anything that you wanted to uh, add towards that? Kind of maybe, uh, you know, share some of your experiences where you have uh, you know, run through with your own projects. Yeah, so I actually was one of those graduate students who came up with my own questions. Um, and my questions arose because of my genetic background. I was working at the Denver Botanic Gardens at the time, and um, cannabis had just sort of been become legal for recreational purposes. And I had a volunteer who um, talk about cannabis and he was getting into the industry and um, I had a friend who said she found something that was amazing it helped her through the day but if she bought it at any other dispensary than this one dispensary it wasn't the same thing and I thought that was very odd because I I didn't know much about cannabis back then but I did know that um, it's largely propagated through cloning and so that's why I thought it was weird so I approached my PI who was who's my PI my mentor for my master's and also for my undergraduate capstones. And I honestly think he would have been the only person that would have said yes, or would have even been able to say yes to doing any kind of cannabis research in the United States. Um, it, it was a unique position that UNC is not, it's not a big school. Um, and uh, because of that, we were able to kind of slice through a little of the red tape um, because he has a relationship with the Dean and all that stuff. Um, so the stipulation for me to be able to do this research was that I just couldn't bring any flower products onto campus, which did make it a little bit challenging. Um, I had to do partial extractions off campus and then bring that and finish DNA and, and PCR and everything on campus. And in addition to that, my PI said, hey, I, have, I don't know anything about cannabis, first of all, so I can be your mentor, but I, I can't help you because I just don't know anything about it. Um, and the other thing is, is I have no idea where to get funding for you. I wouldn't even know where to start. And so my whole PhD, I actually didn't really have a funding source. I didn't have a partner. Um, I had to apply for lots and lots of little internal grants, you know, $200 here, $400 there. I paid for a lot of the cannabis that I purchased to use in my 
in my research out of pocket and a lot of the PCR and um, fragment analysis and, and that kind of stuff that I had to do, uh, Mitt paid for. Um, sort of if he had like uh, a, a, a sample set that wasn't full, he would let me fill it up with my samples because they were gonna pay for the whole thing anyway. So I kind of got to coattail on some of his other projects. So it was very, <laughs> this is so corny, but it was very grassroots and it was very out of the box. We had to do a lot of out of the box thinking in order to get the project done. And I got it all done in about four years and it looking totally different than when I started. My projects all changed, but I um, had some, I think I did some really good research and it was a lot of fun and I'm so glad that I did it. Um, so that's my experience. And uh, I'll let my Abby tell me, tell us hers, I guess. Uh, yeah, oh, it's, um, it's me, Abby. And uh, that's that's so interesting. It's like funding, I think just like for, for starters, research science is really, really expensive. Um, I think that's one thing that's like difficult to translate um, when, we're, when we're talking about doing research and why research is difficult. Like I would say the number one reason why research is really difficult is because it's really expensive and finding the funding for cannabis research is challenging. Um, and I actually have, in terms of like how my projects um, during my PhD and in academia beforehand, they were actually funded by, because I did research on the system in the brain and in the body that interacts with cannabis, right? I did my research on the endocannabinoid system. So it's really almost, it was like a conflicting thing during my PhD. My funding came from NIDA, the National Institute for Drugs of Abuse. And I was funded to look at the endocannabinoid system and to develop new synthetic cannabinoids to treat like substance use disorders or mental health disorders, um, metabolic disorders, et cetera. Uh, so basically like my funding was through the lens of like, hey, there's this system called the endocannabinoid system that's an amazing drug target for, you know, a like a huge number of um, symptoms. Why don't we pay for you to do research on it to develop synthetic cannabinoids? And like the entire time I was like, oh, but there's hundreds of cannabinoids in the plant <laughs> like as well. Um, so that was my that was my journey in in academia, and then since being outside of academia, yeah, finding the funding has been largely in the in the private sector. Um, but again, it's it's just it's difficult because as long as it remains federally illegal, it's hard to get grant funding um, to study it. You have to have like all sorts of paperwork and certification and stuff, which at the moment I have, although it's in process, it like takes a very very long time to. Um, put all of that together <laughs> so but I guess that's what I have to say about the barriers of of getting into it um, especially even I'm in Massachusetts I'm in greater Boston and it's the barrier is still there and in my opinion it's, it's largely about about funding it Thank you. I appreciate that. Cody, did you want to add uh, anything to that at all there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I'm not a research scientist, unlike a lot of the individuals on stage. What I do is I take the research and I try to translate it and apply it uh, really 
I guess in some ways therapeutically. And that's not just me, but that's what I'm specializing in. And then translating that research. Um, you know, I think it's really important. There is a plethora of cannabis research that's coming out. I mean, look, we've got five individuals on stage who have all are all still working in this space. Um, what we don't have very good is uh, communication between the end consumer and the experts, researchers, scientists. And so that's really the role that the pharmacist has always played, translating complex science into understandable tidbits and then helping patients therapeutically apply them. So that's sort of my niche. So I read all the papers that these, these lovely individuals end up doing, uh, but, but I don't actually, at least at this time, uh, I've never participated in, in writing a study. Um, a little bit here and there, I guess, during pharmacy school, but generally no. Um, one thing I, I will definitely say is, while funding has historically been very difficult to get, um, there is no time like the present, and there has been recently changes to federal policy, um, freeing up money and freeing up sources of cannabis. Uh, this is just coming to a head, but for anyone who in the audience who thinks that this is something they're interested in, know that this is a booming field. And yes, you should. If you don't have the education to do it, you certainly can get it, and you can indeed come up with your own question um, or, or potentially your <laughs> your professor's question and hash it out um, and and contribute to the growing science and of the endocannabinoid system. So uh, that's all I have to say about that. I'm Cody and been speaking. No worries. I appreciate that, Cody. We definitely have a couple questions for you. There you almost almost led into the one that I, I, I'm really excited you touched on there. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that one. Trust me. It's uh, there's yeah, I really appreciate that. Um, there's a couple of things that were mentioned in there as far as costs are concerned. And I just wanted to throw it out to, you know, any of uh, any of us on the panel here. Um, you know, why is the cost so high? What are kind of the things maybe that, you know, are there certain aspects that some of us who, you know, are just reading these papers and breaking them down might not, you know, know? I know, you know, Dr. Anibis, you mentioned there's some piecemeal grants that you can um, kind of find out and through. And, you know, Dr. Kaplan, I was also wondering, you know, if funding has gotten easier with federal legalization up here, uh, I know that's, you know, something that, you know, a lot of uh, people ask me about is, you know, just in general about federal legalization, has that made cannabis a little bit, uh, a cannabis, you know, easier uh, to obtain, obviously, as far as research is concerned. So maybe I'll start with you there, uh, John. What is the, you know, what is kind of the status with that as we've, you know, come into this uh, federal legalized moment? Has there been, has it been easier? What's kind of the status of that for us up here in Canada? Yeah, well, in terms of funding, uh, it hasn't really been much of an issue in Canada, even since the medicinal uh, days, uh, I think more interesting is kind of just like the, the the red tape that researchers have had to deal with uh, over the past, you know, five six years. Basically, like for example, when I was doing my first experiment um, from for my PhD, I was it, it was before legalization, and I would have to travel and live in a small town in southern Ontario for you know, six months at a time. Uh, when I was I was growing plants, I was doing horticultural research, so I was doing fertilizer trials, and I was in an indoor facility where uh, I would have to be in there with the master grower at all times. So anytime I looked at a plant, I'd have to be with the master grower because of the regulations. Uh, I'd have to have security checks constantly, background checks, um, had to have the highest level of security clearance that you can get as a civilian. This is me, you know, as a student 
Um, it felt completely ridiculous, but I was very excited at the time. Uh, doing research now is a whole other ball game. You don't need nearly as much of that. And all of that adds cost uh, and time and, and just, just a barrier to entry for anyone trying to do this kind of research. Uh, so, you know, speaking with students now, uh, you know, junior students that are in the lab that I was in previously at Guelph or students elsewhere, it doesn't seem like it's as difficult. It's still difficult, um, but I think that it's progressively getting better. Uh, and Canada has always had the advantage that we have banks. We have, you know, there's less of a stigma on cannabis than there is in the U.S. and elsewhere. So we've been pretty fortunate uh, to be able, like, at least early game, to do some really cool research. Uh, and as long as the the institutions that you're working with kind of take it seriously, if you're if your advisor, if your uh, principal researcher, you know, is able to get research for other trials, they shouldn't have issues getting it for cannabis. It's the same cost effectively as doing other research. Um, so it's not too bad in Canada, actually, from my from my opinion. Um. So I will say, I think it also depends on the field that you're in. So in horticulture, you know, you can do things in greenhouses or growth chambers or outdoor trials. And um, depending on sort of your, your size and how many plants you want to run and the kinds of tests you want to do, you've got, if you're growing indoors, you've got things like lights and nutrients and just the whole setup of, of the plants um, outdoors. You know, you could have just a really horrible season and it wrecks your whole experiment and you got to wait till the next season to do it. Um, and that all is time and money. And then for me in the genetic space, uh, the questions that I get is, why didn't you do next-gen sequencing? Next-gen sequencing is really expensive. Like, we're talking for, you know, a set of samples, you know, you're, you're talking thousands of dollars. And without any funding that wasn't ever going to be something that I would have been able to do. Um, thank goodness my uh, my expertise is in microsatellites, which are short chain and repeat. So like if you think about the code of the DNA, like you could have ADT, ADT, ADT that repeats over and over again. And you can look um, when there's, um, so that, that repeating DNA has a tendency to, to, when it's being replicated, have mistakes in it, which makes it highly um, mutable. Uh, and it changes a lot and it allows you to really um, answer the question which my question was is are these two things identical either they are or they're not um, and that kind of analysis that kind of um, test is actually relatively cheap so you're talking like $300 a plate versus um, $3,000 a plate so um, so that made my that that brought my cost way down and um, really, my biggest cost, I think, was um, buying buying the actual cannabis. Uh, so I think it depends on the space you're in, um, and that the space and the funding and the time that you have is going to limit, you know, the number of individuals that you can that you can study, um, or you know, the, the the time frame that you have to do the experiment and things like that. So um, all of those things kind of play a factor. In, in, and you have to be able to pick the right tool for the resources that you have available. You can't just go ball to the wall every time you want to set up an experiment because that's just not possible most of the time. I think that's a that's a super good point about the type of research that you're in. And I guess now just speaking with <laughs> speaking with you, I'm made very aware that I'm in an incredibly expensive 
research field. Um, because I think I'm also coming from this perspective, like starting this up from scratch and not having a larger institution to take instrumentation from. So like the types of, of instruments that I need to measure what would be like my area of expertise, which is like the molecular interaction of these molecules with the targets inside the human body. Um, first, I have to create those targets, um, which requires cloning. You take the DNA and you need to clone them into vectors and then you have to either get like a bacterial cell or a human like stem cell culture or a yeast cell you get something else to produce that receptor for you like the cb1 receptor is probably the best known target in the endocannabinoid system um i worked with the cb1 uh, receptor in like tissue culture you clone the gene out you get it to produce the receptor and then you have to purify the receptor which requires a whole another set. Um, each of these steps like requires their own tools and like machinery. Um, all of which I think the machinery is probably maybe um, up there with the most expensive and the fact that you have to maintain service contracts for the machinery because if the machine breaks, like I don't know how to fix. I, I can fix like minor problems on on like some of these instruments, but some of these other instruments are like hundreds of thousands of dollars, and I don't want to touch like a vacuum that a laser attaches to. And I don't know what that wire, like what this wire going to this wire would do. Um, so yeah, I guess, I guess I, I think uh, it's definitely a great point that it, it depends. And from, from my side, looking at uh, it, what is preclinical, preclinical research, like before it gets into like animals or human trials of just looking at how drugs interact with these targets um on their own i think one of the big barriers is that it, it takes a, a large amount of like instrumentation and manipulation in a in a laboratory setting um where you just require a, a ton of equipment i think and definitely if you were in a lab where all of that equipment is set up then the consumables become like way more manageable um to do because that is the for for me, I guess that the big barrier is the fact that um, it takes a really powerful instrument to see things at the atomic scale, uh, especially when you're working with really difficult molecules, which the cannabinoids are uh, notoriously difficult to work with in a lab space. You two are making me feel very fortunate to be in horticulture from a <laughs> cost perspective. Uh, I think just another aspect on on, um, on the horticulture side that makes it expensive uh, is the fact that you know, if you're working with a, with a producer that's otherwise going to be using that product for sale, uh, you know, at, at certain experiments, you're growing hundreds of plants, thousands of plants, uh, you know, the larger the scale you go, the better the paper, but the more plants you need. And usually the product is destroyed, uh, at least it needed to be in Canada. So, you know, there's hundreds of thousands of dollars of lost revenue, uh, which is not an easy pill to swallow, but Sometimes the the publicity from the experiments the, allows the producers to kind of um, be okay with it, but it's just another cost that that's not often kind of considered. How do you di how do you destroy it? That's so sad. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even want to talk about that. <laughs> often um, the the Health Canada got a kind of recommended method um, is mixing it with vinegar and kitty litter, and then throwing in the garbage and just so wasteful 
but uh, you can also call, you can compost it. We, we, we developed a, um, a program at flower where we, after much uh, effort, we were able to compost all of our cannabis waste. So that was nice. We could reuse it in the field. Uh, but that took a long time to, to get through the regulatory body. So I was going to say too, um, we read a paper, uh, I think it was a couple of weeks ago now. Um, and we were wondering why the experiment was set up the way that it was and why they only had like three different types of cannabis that they were testing in their field trials. And I was like, I bet these are grad students. I bet this is a grad student project. And it turns out it was, it was a PhD. Actually two PhDs were on the paper doing cannabis horticulture. And, you know, this is, I think this is where this, this subject to get people who do research to come together and talk about this, um, that, you know, sometimes, you know, especially with grad students, you have, you have, you have not always funding limitations, but you definitely have time limits and you can't do everything. And you kind of have to work in the place that you are. Like this experiment would have been much better if they had been in New York and maybe someone in Florida and maybe someone in California to kind of actually look at the difference in environments. But it's a grad student project, so they're going to be kind of limited to the scope of what they can look at just because of, um, you know, that you can't be in grad school forever. I mean, I guess some people do a pretty good job of doing that. But, I, you know, the whole point of going to school is to graduate and get, get out there and start doing the, the, the work, right? So that, That's a really good point. Um, yeah, the, the, and I, I listened to, to one of these, these conversations, uh, that, uh, that I think a few of you guys were, were, were involved, um, was talking about one of the papers that I did, uh, in, uh, wasn't the drug, I think it was the, yeah, the drug stress paper. And you guys had a few questions about, you know, why I did things certain way. And I found it really interesting, the questions that you guys had, because, um, it's very reflective of the limitations of doing cannabis research, especially five years ago. Um, there's one question about you know, why was the, the temperature so low uh, in one of the, during flowering in, in one of the cases and some also something about replication. Um, and so a lot of, a lot of it is, you know, it, those experiments were done like in a, in a grow room uh, amongst other production plants. So it was like, I, I had a table and I didn't have influence over the environmental set points because that's, you know, the master grower's job. Um, so I kind of had to just work with what I had. I, I convinced them to make sure it was stable so that I could do the experiments properly. But yeah, working with you know cold flowering temperatures is not something that I would do. But it was a limitation um, that existed at the time. And there's a lot of things like that, especially when you're a grad student, that you don't have, you know, you, you don't necessarily have the authority to you know to make the changes, and uh, it can lead to less impactful research, which is a shame, um, or just more difficult research. This is Corey. I think a lot of times, it also leads to. Um... Uh, you know, a lot of these cannabis papers ends up with the statement that although this work shows, more research needs to be done. Yeah, for sure. That's often the case. This is Corey. Uh, thanks for clearing that up there, Daron. <laughs> that, that was definitely me. I was very, uh, when I was going through that materials and methods portion of it there, I was, uh, yeah, that was one question for sure. I was, As you could tell, I was a little bit, uh, a little bit confused. And uh, yeah, no, I really do appreciate uh, you uh, addressing that specifically, because of course, you know, we spoke about that paper. Uh, and that was, you know, one of my true introductions to some of the work that you were doing. Um, but it also, you know, really, again, kind of is that swing into kind of the limitations of, you know, the studies, not only is there a funding limitation, 
Um, but we also have, you know, kind of the, this, you know, it's been alluded to a few different ways um, as far as cost is concerned and the red tape, um, you know, kind of going hand in hand in some ways, but also having leverage, uh, which is, is interesting and kind of having things a little bit cheaper, doing it a certain way. Um, I wanted to touch on uh, kind of publishing, you know, once once we finally, you know, we get the cannabis research project started, you know, we finally get funding kind of figured out. We have kind of our other limitations sorted. Um, you know, publishing is a whole other uh, subject entirely. So, um, you know, again, I'd feel free uh, whoever to kind of jump in on that one. I know it's a little bit of a different um, situation to kind of find a journal that actually wants to do this and then peer reviewers. Uh, and then I know there's one thing that we're kind of bring up. There is a paper that we did uh, last week, which was, I guess, is considered a preprint, I think is the correct word for that. So uh, that's something also that I kind of wanted to bring up into the conversation. So what what does it really take to kind of find a journal um, and peer rev reviewers? Um, if anyone wants to take that, please, by all means, go right on ahead. I could speak to that on the horticulture side. I'm sure it's going to be very different on for molecular biology and for, uh, yeah, for, for other, for other fields. But, um, in horticulture, it's not too difficult. There's, there, there's not really, there wasn't really any hesitancy for any of the large horticulture journals to pick up cannabis research. Uh, they thought it was new and exciting and it's a plant like anything else. So as long as it was legal, it was done in a legal uh, jurisdiction. It wasn't an issue. Uh, it, it's in all science. It's an issue of there's there's always an issue of you know finding a reputable journal because there's some journals that will publish publish anything, um, and there's some that are quite selective. And it's those selective journals that tend to put out the legitimate research. Um, so uh, yeah, it wasn't. It's not too difficult to find uh, if you're if you're if you're working with a, an academic institution that is used to publishing. My experience was that it wasn't more difficult to publish equally valid research that involves cannabis. Yeah, I think probably one of the, there's more and more journals that are willing to accept the research. And I think that the the bigger barrier to publishing at a startup, at least I'm very much so in a startup phase of my company, is the amount of time and effort that it takes to generate something that is a peer-reviewed scientific article. Um, and it's um, not nearly as much fun I mean, this is going to probably seem self like obvious or not, not, maybe not obviously, but it's not nearly as much fun as writing lay articles or making TikToks or educating in a, in a way that's more accessible. Like scientific articles are incredibly dense and the amount of usually uh, the amount of background literature that you read, like the amount of other scientific articles that you read before you go to draft your own scientific article is like easily like 10 times the time at least for me like I spend a huge amount of time literature claims that you make are um are supported by the data that you found and that you're um you know that you're disclosing to the public and then it goes to publication and that process can take anywhere from like a few months to like six months and I've I've had like a, a paper or a chapter that is like it's a chapter submitted, so it's waiting on the other people who are writing other chapters who all have to coordinate, right? So sometimes it's like um, just a large coordinated event, uh, I suppose. And then just a, a short note on the whole, like, but I do like think that all research papers, not just cannabis research, but 
pretty much every research paper ever written ends with, and we need more research on this topic. Um, because I don't think research projects are ever complete. And I don't think I've come across like a single research paper that hasn't like opened more questions than, than it's closed. Um, which I, I love about research. That's something that I like absolutely love. Uh, but I also think it's something that can be misconstrued with cannabis science and cannabis research specifically is like just how much more research is needed and how it's like, oh, cannabis needs so much more research. And it's like, well, yes, cannabis needs more research, but like literally every research paper that's ever been written ends with, and we need more research because we need more research on, on everything, <laughs> which is a biased opinion, I know, but um I, I think we can all agree on that. Yeah. At least it's true. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's an excellent point. Um, and I was going to say too that, yeah, you, you know, you have three or four aims in a paper, you answer those three or four questions and it brings up like six or seven more. And honestly, like, I feel like this is what keeps us curious and keeps us employed, you know? Um, and it can also steer us and hopefully if we have open minds as we are doing this research, like I don't ever do hypotheses. Like I never say, you know, I, I don't ever have, um, I mean, I, I have things that I would like them to turn out this way, but they never do. I don't do hypotheses. I just say, here's what we're, we're doing. This is why we're doing it. Here are the aims. And then you run the data, you do the analysis and you see what it says and that's what you report. Um, but that always brings up more questions. And then I was gonna add another point that a lot of people are not aware of that, you know, yes, it takes a long time to do the experiment sometimes. Yes, it takes a long time to write it all up. And yes, like, oh my God, every single sentence in the introduction is gonna be uh, summarizing and synthesizing all, all the research out there that's, that's kind of relevant, not all of it, but the majority of it. And then um, when you go to peer review, my, my lab paper, which has finally been accepted into Frontiers in Plant Science, um, I submitted it to a different journal um, and I had questions of why I submitted to this journal. The answer is it's because it was free. Um, but they did five rounds of peer review. They really wanted it to just to turn it into like a pharmacology paper that was looking at THC and CBD, but this was a genetic study and it was independent of any kind of THC or CBD that was present in the plant. They just kept wanting us to do this. And so finally we pulled it out, but it can go through a lot more than just one round of peer review. Um, and they had that paper for over a year before we finally said, okay, we're done. Um, and we went to Frontiers, which I think our bill for Frontiers is $2,950. So that's another expense that comes with doing research is that you have to cough up the money to get your, your publication out there. Um, and, you know, as, as Darren said, uh, some of those those journals will publish anything and oftentimes they come at a low cost or they're free. Um, the bigger journals that have open access and are, are um, well-revered and, and legitimate and valid and, and have a lot of credibility, those are more a lot more expensive to publish in. Um, and you can, you can apply for um, like financial aid, but they don't take off much. They, they might do like 10 or 15% off the ticket price, but we have to pay to tell you what we found, which I, and we don't get paid to peer review. We have to give up our expertise. We have to give up our time to to help our peers um, 
you know, make sure they have a good product and a solid experiment before they publish, but we don't get anything back from that other than um, we get to read your papers first, I guess. A pat on the, a pat on the back. <laughs> uh, yeah, like, oh, thanks for helping us out, and we're not going to pay you, and can you please submit your, your, your next paper with us and, and, and pay us $3,000? Cool. And I don't think a lot of people, I think a lot of people think we get paid to do this stuff or that big companies will pay us to generate the data and the results that they want to see. And I feel like a lot of times, I mean, that can be true, but to me, that's a big red flag and you have to, you know, you have to put in your competing interests and your funding sources and that kind of thing. Um, but for most of the time for me, and at least in my experience, it's, we aren't working for big corporations looking to find a result and then publish that as legitimate science. That's a super good point. And, and yeah, often you don't even retain the, the rights to the paper. So, you know, sharing it with your friends is kind of, you're not even supposed to do that. It, it's, it's pretty ridiculous the, the way that the system is set up, but it's just kind of the same for all, all of academia, all of science, something that needs a, a, a real shift, I think, soon. Yeah, one of the other things that's interesting that is like a current um, topic in my current in my mind is that I did a study, um, and a piece of that study that we want to publish in the peer review has to do with you know it's like a, it was it was a study that was based on a social media trend and we wanted to include social media data in it and we're including you know people who are on my TikTok or have seen TikTok will know what I'm talking about. It's a study on microwaving. And I think it's really, really interesting. And I want to disclose the information and we have the results and I would love to talk about them, but actually can't because you can't talk about anything that you're submitting for peer review until it is done. So also, Anna, I'm so sorry that took like five rounds. That sounds like the worst. <laughs> it was, it was totally the worst. Like, I was so sounds like the worst. It was so frustrating and so annoying. And they even got so you could, I could tell that these were um, like not geneticists that were reviewing this paper because they kept wanting to talk about cannabinoids and nothing about genetics and didn't understand like any of that stuff. So they brought in for the fourth round of reviews, they brought in an expert reviewer who was a geneticist who said, no, this paper is great. It doesn't need all this crap in it. And they were like, okay, well, so one more thing, we just need you to fix this, this, and this. And we're all like, well, no, I've already said, we're not fixing anything. This is done. And if you don't want to publish it, then just say that. Like, we can take it somewhere else. And, yeah, but um, you, yeah, you can't, you can't disclose any of the information and you can't submit it somewhere else until you're like done with that one place. Like, it's like when you submit a paper or a study to publish in a, in a scientific journal, you're basically like saying like, I will only submit it just to this one place and I, I promise not to submit it anywhere else or disclose it anywhere else right. until I like it's just a weird it's a weird process I guess I suppose that I part mean, of it I <laughs> there's also um you know like uh, I think Corey was saying um the preprint servers now where they check it to make sure it's actually like proper science the experiment is good you know and it's got data and results and methods and all that stuff in it and it goes up on the server as a as not yet peer reviewed. And I really like that system. And there are some people who just put their stuff on preprints. I'm not going to mention any names, but um, he has a lot of papers on there. Uh, and he just leaves them there. He never puts them in for, for proper peer review. And the people who do the peer reviews 
um, essentially are the people in the comments section that are like, hey, I love this study, but how about this? And you didn't do that. And your results show this, but yet you conclude this. And so it's kind of like a open access peer review, um, uh, but without any sort of, you don't have to do anything about it. Um, it's, it's and, interesting. And, this, and the study that I went through five reviews with um, was on bioarchives. So whatever. <laughs> it's out there. The whole preprint thing is kind of a weird gray area. I'm not. I'm not a huge fan of of just you know submitting for a preprint and then not actually going through peer review because the peer review process it, it's it's you know there's issues with it. All the issues that we've just talked about, but it's also the only tool that we have to make sure that science is real and that experts are checking um, checking the data, checking the results, checking the interpretation. Uh, that's a, like it's the most powerful tool we have in science, and it's. It's kind of broken in some ways, but sadly, it's the only thing we have. And a lot of scientists, yeah, going around, kind of getting around that with, with just submitting for preprint. But I, you know, I would never take a preprint for face value. Well, and this human has, um, he's got over 20 papers on it, and I wouldn't exactly call him. I mean, no, I would call him a businessman, not necessarily a scientist, although um, he operates in the cannabis industry, obviously, in, in kind of the science field. Um, but I, I wouldn't call him a scientist. He's a businessman. But <laughs> I'd, he, I'd love to hear who you're talking about and be offline. <laughs> uh, I'd be happy to tell you offline. Um, or you can go to BioArchive and see. Uh, <laughs> who's in the cannabis space, who's a business. But uh, it, it's interesting. And, um, and, yeah, like a lot of people don't, no, and I didn't even know really what a preprint was versus peer review. And my colleague Daniela Vergara was the one who said I should put this particular paper up on BioArchive because it had really good information for the public, which was that the cannabis grown at the University of Mississippi was more closely related to hemp than anything on the legal market. Um, and she, she, I gave her DNA, um, and so she was also running. Um, the same sort of uh, questions, but with next-gen sequencing techniques. Um, so she was like, you need to put this out there so that it's out there because it could get held up in the peer review process because people are going to be scared to publish it. It's always difficult when you call out the government. Um, and I was like, okay. And Mitt, my PI, he does not like preprints, but I talked him into it. And he was like, yeah, this for this particular subject, I think that it's that putting it on a preprint server is appropriate. So that's why we did that. Beautiful. So I see that uh, Cody has rejoined us, which is perfect timing because I am right at my question time that integrates Cody into the conversation with everybody here. Um, and it was a point brought up earlier about getting this information out to everybody and just having that communication issue. I know this really hits home, um, especially for me, hobby, of course. Um, and I, you know, for us here at Resonate Cannabis, we've been, you know, hit by the lovely band gods of social media a couple of times now. Uh, it's so frustrating. So, you know, what do we do? Let's just launch channels and go live and just really force the message down the throats for everybody. But I wanted to kind of, you know, throw that out there, Cody. You know, maybe one of the 
what's kind of at the top of the list if we could just kind of do something in the cannabis industry which i know some of us all kind of wish sometimes is just wave that wand you know we wake up in the morning what is kind of that one informational point or kind of the one of the papers that you've might have you know stumbled across recently where it's got a really good piece of information but we just don't know how to disseminate to everybody on an effective level or you know having those roadblocks getting it out there I love that I could I could hop back in. Uh, I apologize, I lost service there for a bit. Uh, but thank you. My name is Cody. I'm a cannabis pharmacist, as, as you know, if you were listening to the beginning of this stream. And uh, I think the most interesting thing that I've noticed is is the under the over focus on the nuances of, of complex botanical plants um, and the lack of focus on on clinical outcomes. And then in addition to that, I think that one thing. Um, that was really interesting that I saw recently is that we found through samples of Swedish brown bears that when they are hibernating, that they have extremely altered endocannabinoid levels compared to their summer. So when they're eating this fish in this omega-3 salmon-rich diet, they're these big, fat, burly bears, and all winter long, their bodies produce a bunch of uh, endocannabinoid-like and acylethanolamides and these these molecules are mediating hibernation they're they're hibernative not asleep but not arousable state is all being mediated through lipid signaling eicosanoids and and in particular you know non-endocannabinoid endocannabinoids <laughs> my name's cody i'm done speaking that's that's what gets me going i love that study cody i think that I, in terms of like being banned and doing cannabis, like science education, like, oh, so frustrating <laughs> for sure. Especially when, um, especially when education is really, in my opinion, I think obviously, maybe not obviously, but shared by, by everyone who like believes in the science and wants to explain the validity to change stigma. I think education really is the way forward. And it's not just education for those of us who are getting our PhDs. It's education of, of everyone um, who's in the community because we're all representatives of our community, you know, from bud tenders and growers, just users, um, to like telling your grandparents about how it could help their rheumatoid arthritis, right? Uh, and I'm I'm super super biased. Have to disclose this bias. I have spent pretty much every second of my research career studying the endocannabinoid system, so I'm extremely biased, but it is so important, and it's so much more important than we give it credit for in every single human and in every single, as, as actually Cody mentioned earlier, in every single mammal or vertebrate, and it actually has been evolutionarily traced back. They found CB1 receptors in, like, a primitive relative of the jellyfish. And my enzyme that I focused on and did most of my work on for my thesis, the most similar thing to it was found in archaeobacteria or single-celled organisms, which means that the endocannabinoid system is evolutionarily ancient and just plays this like incredibly important role in every single one of us in our brain chemistry and metabolism and our immune system. And that the the plant, like the cannabis plant, that it makes this like amazing formulation of molecules that affects the endocannabinoid system in a in a way that's like beneficial to many of us. I mean, that's like so magical to me. And I just it's I think that's like 
the validity of that is what I would love to like disclose magically to everyone is just like how valid that is at a molecular level and it's not perfect and it's not the same every single time uh, but that the, the reason why it works is there every single time. I wanted to say that cannabis like totally copied us. We were making endocannabinoids first. Oh, I'm just kidding. But um, uh, it, yeah, evolutionary wise, like insects don't have an endocannabinoid system and we don't seem to, as far as I know, they don't seem to be able to utilize cannabinoids. They may have some different receptors or something I just saw recently. But uh, yeah, insects seem to have, in evolutionary times, somewhere along the line, insects lost this ancient endocannabinoid system. And so they don't have the same uh, effects on insects. So when people say that bees love cannabis um, and, you know, buzzing around, there's no reason for an insect to be visiting cannabis for any kind of reasons other than for like a quick pollen snack, but it has to be a male. It, they don't get anything from the females. They don't get any nec nectar reward or anything like that. They don't benefit from the, from the cannabinoids. And so, um, you know, all this stuff about bees that has been coming out recently, I, I don't know, man. I feel like it's kind of um, not really true. Um, and especially when we have monocultures, just big fields of female cannabis, like, what is a bee going to do when it gets there? It's just going to be like, man, where, where's the food? So anyway, I digress. But yeah, insects don't have an endocannabinoid system. Um, insects have it's, insects have molecular, like molecular machinery for the downstream process of the endocannabinoid system, which I think is cool. Like, because it's weird, not cool, but it's this weird, uh, like, inconsistency in my mind where they don't have an endocannabinoid system but then they have machinery for the downstream part the eicosanoid system for epoxides and i this is so random but my first lab that i worked in uh, my pi or my mentor in that lab he started off as an entomologist studying insects and then found out that the enzyme that he was studying in insects were also in humans and then that was his that was like his transition into like endocannabinoid eicosanoid research which is just so random to me and then when i found out that insects don't have an endocannabinoid system like somehow we're lost that's something that i mean i i wish that we had the answers for for things like that because i think it would help explain some of the differences in us potentially in terms of like how species diverge from each other which i'm now like well outside my field so i'll stop talking a hundred percent in a normal that's room you could good. probably like keep going but yeah there's there's just so many people and so many insights i love it miyabe like i think that that's that's fascinating that they don't but they still have eicosanoids which is essentially lipid signaling uh which means they have to get fats from somewhere in their diet in one way or the other right or do they completely create them I have no idea, but these are questions that I now need to Google. I can tell you that, that like animals like wasps, for example, they like to eat meat. I got to think that there's some fat ingestion there and, and could definitely, you know, be substrates to form this sort of thing, you know, flies as well, et cetera. And I'm sure there's, there's uh, proteins and probably some fat in, in doggy feces as well. So, Ew. Ew. Life, Ew. nature, nature, y'all. All right, this is great. I'm coding. 
I, at this Corey, I knew at some point in time during this discussion that we were going to get that. We were going to get some sort of tangent where everyone just kind of went into a direction that I didn't think we were going to talk about. That was it right at that moment in time. I appreciate that. We're, we are getting close to, to time here. Uh, so I wanted to throw uh, an opportunity out to uh, Casey and Molly. Uh, if you have any questions uh, for our lovely panel, please, uh, please go ahead. This would be the time to do it. This is Molly. Um, I have a question because, uh, you know, predominantly um, I'm coming from the post-Soviet bloc area. So a lot of people let's say that talk to me about cannabis most of the time don't really know much about it and so for a lot of them the question is you know like they want to like let's say they wish a certain research was a thing but it's not yet so for a lot of people i think the question is kind of like where do we go to pitch those ideas or like as a as consumers how do we demand let's say like you know them to conduct more research on certain aspects of like cannabis consumption or cannabis cultivation like uh you know for people who are not like directly involved in the science community but they you know as citizens want to benefit from the eventual information where can they kind of like go and uh, either ask or i wish there was some kind of like you know like a little box where you could drop your ideas uh, for the research and you know maybe they somebody reviews it um, i wish that was a thing but i think it's something that a lot of people maybe wonder about um, and everybody just kind of ends at oh i wish there was a research and we don't really you know get that thought across to anyone really and i just was wondering if any of you know of something like that or if you have any thoughts about it and i'm complete That is a really good question. <laughs> um, I guess from from my end, like I I really love to take like more way more recently since I've been on TikTok, I've been uh, exposed to like different problems or I guess questions in the community because when people comment on something and then other people see it and then it gets like they're like oh wow that's like a really prevalent thing and. Um, it's interesting, like the first step in research science is like providing the the evidence that there's a need for the research. And I think like giving that information to like the right person is probably really important, but there's not like an easy, I don't know if I have an answer for like an easy go-to of being like, well, first <laughs> you find the cannabis research scientist who's like the right type of scientist, because that in and of itself is, a, I think, a more difficult thing Um because there's many different types of us, as you know, just as this conversation has has shown, like we all specialize in different things, and I can't answer a question about genetics or horticulture at all or clinical practice, right? Um, so bringing that need to me wouldn't be beneficial if there was like a question that had to do with any of those sectors. So perhaps I guess like my advice would be there's there's quite a few um, subsections of cannabis research organizations. Um, that there's there's local ones like in the U.S. There's international ones as well, um, where maybe that would be a good place to begin because they're societies of um, members of of scientists who who do research on cannabis and the cannabinoids. 
It's yeah, it's a really interesting question, and you're, I think, yeah, it, it's it's something that there's a huge deficit in in, in industry because you don't really have to. You can kind of just make it up. Why, like, if if you're a researcher and you're going to do the research, you can. You don't really need to consult anyone on the idea if you're willing to do the work and you have the funding. You can do it most of the time. Uh, I think that it, the onus is kind of on the researcher, uh, and from like a horticulture perspective, there's a huge emphasis on extension, and so. Uh, Whenever you're kind of researching horticulture, you're encouraged to work with farmers, work with growers. Uh, and a big part of uh, what I learned, at least, is, you know, you, you, you go onto farms, you go to cannabis growers, ask them what are their biggest concerns. Um, and if you do that in a genuine way, and that's something that is taught to researchers, um, then I think that the research will end up being a lot more useful, which is, that's the goal, uh, especially with applied research. Um, so I think, yeah, having... I, I don't have an easy answer for, you know, where you could go or where you could recommend someone go. But um, I think it's just important for researchers in general to ask those questions and to create those forums. It's more on us than, than on the, the, the public, in my opinion. Um, I also think that's a great question, Molly. Um, just because, yeah, there is, really is no good person you can go ask. Like, hey, how do I get this research done? Here's a question I have. Um, but I would like to add that I feel like the cannabis science community is relatively small and we all kind of know somebody in other fields. Um, so I don't know. I'm, I'm very open on emails and LinkedIn. If somebody sends me a message, I will answer them. And if it's not something that I can help with, I can at least give them a name or, you know, give them a research article which has names and author emails on it um, so that hopefully I can send them in the right direction to um, potentially, you know, ask a question and, and, and um, get somebody else who's doing research to go, oh, my God, that's such, that's such a good idea. We do need to look at that. We could do that. Um, it's not a great answer, but... Um, I think, I don't know, it's a start, but yeah, it'd be really nice if we had like a questions and comments drop box. Thank you all. Yeah, it would be cool to have like a, like a bot, you know, where people can just go and drop suggestions and then you, you as scientists can go and see like, you know, the population is interested in this specific area or like these are specific questions they have if you know maybe somebody would like to do research and that would be cool but you know maybe one day it will be a thing uh i myself you know i don't conduct research i don't even have a science degree yet maybe that will be um sometimes in the future now that i don't have to pay for time situation fees but um yeah i, I really appreciate the answers it's definitely not an easy thing and uh, if it was i'm sure we would have a lot more you know things already <laughs> researched and uh, published but uh you know um i appreciate your honesty everyone thank you okay i have so many things in my head i want to i have so many questions and ideas <laughs> but i'm gonna be quick okay oh, good, kind of, first of all i think it would be awesome if any of you professionals would join us for an episode of the Cannabis Club. Um, like, I mean, we have Dr. Anna, and if maybe if one of these weeks coming up, we do like 
um, we cover a paper in your specialty, maybe you'd like to join us for the discussion. Uh, we'll definitely reach out if we are covering a paper that kind of works with everyone's profession. I love our diversity here. Um, so my question, one thing that we were kind of asking ourselves and each other was like, how can the community help with this process of getting research forward? And maybe like one kind of direction of the question I want to take is I'm really interested in like citizen or community science. Do you think that's like applicable to cannabis science? Maybe like more in a horticulture sense? Yeah, I think that um, that's that's definitely important. So like as an example, coming up with, with ideas for research or just trying to figure out what the need is in cannabis, especially early on, like there wasn't any documentation. There wasn't really any other research out there. Uh, I was just going onto the forums and looking at uh, what problems growers were running into and, you know, how they would help each other out and the network's online are really powerful for that kind of thing and some people do really interesting work at home it's not peer-reviewed and it's not you know maybe it's not as controlled as something else but it it at least sparks good questions um and so participating like like this forum is fantastic as well i i, I was very uh pleased to kind of see that this existed um just talking through papers and and explaining you know the limitations of them and things like that um, but yeah, participating online as, as just someone who's a non-scientist is, is a really powerful thing because the scientists are, the people who are doing the research are, are, are tuned into that. They should be at least. Um, and it drives the research. I think citizen science in my field is way underutilized and that actually a majority of the research or not a research, but a majority of the information that we have on cannabis and cannabinoids in the human experience and the pharmacology of it is actually in human experience in terms of the fact that we've been, you know, using medical cannabis for thousands and thousands of years. And that I think that we have never even like broken into the ice of trying to harvest that data in a way that is like meaningful. Although we're starting, we're definitely starting to do that um, I'm definitely super interested in that because I think that especially now that we have the ability to have like third party certificates of analysis and people are able to know with a, a decent amount of certainty what like types of cannabis they're using, how much, like I would be super interested if people were, would want to like buy a little scale and such and be interested in recording information on themselves. But I also know that like, I, I take all that data on myself because I'm just like a data nerd and I have just like a huge log of information, <laughs> but I, I'm trying to, I am in the process, I think of figuring out, I think it'd be great to figure out a way for it to be super easy to, to do and to study like a, a number of things. Cause I think, I definitely think it can be done. I think it should be done. I think it's begun. Um, but it needs to be made like more accessible. And I think that's where um, that's where I'm at right now is thinking about how it could be more accessible and how um, we could make it easier, basically. Um, right now, I think the barrier would be that to get it to be like near clinical or, I mean, it doesn't, it's never gonna be clinical. The real life, real life is just not clinical. Um, there's too many variables, but in order for it to be um, 
you know, to minimize the ma the number of variables, there has to be like a certain level of, of like rigor and education that takes place. And you have to find a large enough population of people who are willing to, to do that, right? Who would be willing to be like, yeah, I can input the numbers from my third party COA and I can also weigh my stuff and I can also quantify experiences on like a scale of one to 10 in a different, in a number of experiences. And I think from what I've heard, there's like a large number of people who are willing and it's just like this organization of figuring out how to do it in a way that comes out with information that's that's meaningful. I love that. And I uh, and that would also be um, collecting data would also be really great if we could have it in the horticulture space as well. So all of these folks that are growing indoors, outdoors, like what kinds of lights are you using? What kind of nutrients are you using? How much, how often, what kind of water? Um, where are you? <laughs> like GPS coordinates would be great um, because then you could also um, align it with weather patterns, climate, um, you know, things like that. And, um, you know, and gathering a huge amount of data like that, yeah, it's not perfect, but when you have enough data, the, 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 the errors are diminished somewhat. Um, and it, and you get a really good broad picture of what's going on. And especially since we don't really know um, how much the environment plays into uh, into the phenotypes of especially things like hemp where people's lives are and, and all of their money is on the line and, and it has to remain compliant. Like we don't know what the difference is. Um, we know there is a difference, but we don't know how much, you know, between Oregon and Florida, let's say. So having like a countrywide database where people could just put in information would be so amazing but again who's gonna start that up because I don't know how to do that <laughs> don't worry about it Dr. Anibis you know how to do so many of the other things I think that it makes up for it so <laughs> no worries at all oh you're so sweet just say it I mean there's this is this has been great. I um, I am very thrilled. Casey, thank you so much for um, breaking the ice on that one. I would really love um, anybody on this panel, please. Uh, I would absolutely be thrilled and adore all, any of you and all of you. Heck, if you all want to do that uh, at some point, come on back through. Uh, and yeah, it's, uh, it's always a pleasure to have um, these discussions just particularly about research, uh, but we can actually have you know, people who are trying to disseminate the information, you know, trying to actually do these um, experiments, get these papers out to everybody. I really do uh, sincerely appreciate it. I mean, me personally, you know, being a cultivator uh, and having these conversations in these different rooms, as I sure, uh, you know, especially, you know, Duran being at Flower, I can, you know, only imagine just the debates, I think I'll put it, of, you know, what to do in these rooms and the environmental parameters and really just the, you know, continued forceful pushing of bro science where I'm just extremely excited to kind of have that, you know, push off to the side a little bit. And we really fuse uh, this industry full of, you know, real science uh, instead of just the bro science. So I thank you all for taking the time today to, uh, you know, advance that conversation. Uh, I'm going to uh, hit, uh, stop on our record that we have down there and I'm going to invite anybody down in the audience there if you do um, have any questions we'll take one or two real quickly uh, and then we will uh, get out of here uh, I know that we've taken up 
uh, an hour uh, or so of everyone's time here. Uh, if anyone does have to go, please, uh, by all means, uh, we will not hold it against you. Uh, but I would really like to thank uh, to Ron, Dr. Kaplan, uh, Anna, Dr. Anibis, Dr. Shields, Miyabe, uh, and Cody, Dr. Peterson. Thank you so much for coming on through for the special edition uh, of the Canna Book Club. I have I've honestly been waiting for this all week, like a little kid at Christmas. This has been my Christmas in September. So I really do, again, uh, thank you all from the bottom of my heart. Uh, for coming on through today. It uh, it really means a lot, everybody. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me. It was great. Thank you. Thanks so much, Corey. It's awesome. Beautiful. So we'll give a quick moment for everyone to come on up for all of the folks that are watching us live on YouTube and Twitch. Thank you so much for joining us today on the special episode of the Canna Book Club. This is why you should all come through to Clubhouse so you can come and ask questions if you have them to our wonderful guests. Uh, with that, we will see all of you live next week on the Canna Book Club Thank you so much for joining us and we'll continue the conversation for at least hopefully five to 10 more minutes over on Clubhouse. Thank you so much to the live stream. We will see you all later. And there you have it, everybody. Another episode of the Resonate Radio podcast. Thank you so much for making it all the way through to the end. We appreciate the downloads, the follows. Leave us a review if you're listening to us on the Apple podcast. Please subscribe and hit the bell over on YouTube and Twitch. You can find us over there at Resonate Media. You can also find us on Instagram at Team Resonate. You can also send us an email to info at ResonateCannabis.com. I hope you all have a wonderful day and thank you so much again for taking the time to listen to us here on Resonate Radio. We'll see you again next time. Thank you.